This is Coda Radio, episode 357, for May 13th, 2019. Hello and welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. My name is Wes and I'm joined once again by Mr. Michael Dominic. Welcome to the show, Mike. It sounds like you're having a bit of a storm out there, but well, that didn't stop you. Yes, Wes, we are on location here in uh, Atlantis, otherwise known as Florida, and things are going great. We are not drowning. Well, here to help live with us in the studio is the man who puts I in iOS, Mr. Chris Fisher. (laughs) Or the home and HomePod. Oh, that's right. Hello, gentlemen. Good to be back. I brought Levi the studio dog with me, too. That's really really why you invited me. He keeps us safe, so we can focus on all the good content in this here Coda Radio, which, man, okay, Chris and I are just back from Red Hat Summit in Boston. Boston. And while we left, it seemed like everything else in the world exploded. Holy smokes. Between Google I.O. and Microsoft Build build right here. We just just flew, left Seattle, the the Redmond area, abandoned it for Red Hat. Also, a Python conference was going on, too. It was all the things were happening last week. It was crazy. (laughs) So we, we have a lot to catch up on here on the show. Before we get into any of that, though, we've had some excellent feedback this week. Let's start with our friend Lewis, who writes to us, Love the show. It's probably my favorite piece of JB content since the untimely departure of Unfilter. Yes. And thank you for your perfect email. Isn't that the end? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's perfect. And conclusion. (laughs) No, he's got a little more substance than that, Mike. He writes, I was listening to episode 356 with Glee as you were discussing testing and junior DevOps positions. I've just accepted a position as DevOps assistant at a small dev shop with the intent to work on my coding and development skills and make my way into a more useful member of the team. I was very excited about the position initially. It's taken some time to get the interview process behind me, and I was beginning to become concerned I had accepted a position as the office doormat, bottom of the totem pole, as it were. After listening to the show and hearing Michael talk about the importance of QA to a dev shop, I'm thinking it may be a great role for me. The following question you had regarding QA as a career path really hit my concerns on the nose and made me feel a lot better about my career decision. I thought I was going to be in a big rush to get out of the basement and up to a full developer position, but after listening, I really feel like my contribution to this team is going to be important and necessary from the get-go. Thanks for the great show, Lewis. Yeah, so that's that's some good stuff, Lewis. Um, QA is super important. I keep saying this and people keep not believing me. Especially for a dev shop. So when QA fails, oftentimes dev shops either lose margin on a project or, you know, get fired. And when the shop gets fired, usually people get fired. So that's super bad, right? QA, please test your stuff. The only thing that really determines if you're like adding value and are a good contributing member to the team or your role is viewed that way is the culture of the people you're working with, right? Like if they view your contributions, if the system's set up so that your position isn't just you know, mindless tasks that should be automated, but you're actually interacting with and, and concerned and an integral part of the process, then even if even if people outside of that industry don't understand your value, it's still totally valid. It's a bit of an ego check at the door. You can also flip this around for other industries. Like when I look at tech support and 
my previous roles as a sysadmin, the absolute best admins had spent time doing tech support. They'd spent time answering the phone and answering end users' questions. And even just to bring it to something a little more locally here, uh, just recently, you know, Wes is, he's like our, our, our lead podcaster on the network. He's like the, the top podcaster. But just over the last couple of weeks, before we hired another editor, we had Wes editing this here show just to give him hands-on experience with what that end of the production crew has to work on. Wes wasn't hired to edit podcasts, but it was good to give him those insights so that way, A, he knows what kind of deliverables to give another team member, but B, uh, you gained a lot of insights into the actual production application as well. So now like you've taken that information forward and enhanced other aspects of our production, which was just an ancillary benefit of having you go do something that to be frank, was below you, below your job title. But, you know, you check the ego at the door and you're like, this is just good work. This is just something for me to learn. Yeah, it makes me a better team member and I can put out a better product as a result. Exactly. I think that was really useful. And it's it's a matter of just getting over yourself a little bit. <laughs> and, you know, we do need to, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about, and Mike, I'm glad glad you shared your views because we do need to recognize that role in the industry and not not be so obsessed with the totem pole and just recognize that we're all a team trying to make a product or whatever you're doing together. How can you make the team stronger? Exactly. Okay, well, totally different sort of feedback. There's been a request over in our subreddit. Yes, we do have a subreddit, coderadio.reddit.com. Anyone know any Linux or programming subs that aren't full of mindless circle jerking? <laughs> Most seem to be afflicted with mindless circle jerking, free software extremism, and other indiscretions. Now, Mike, you've already gave a little bit of feedback. This is a hard question to answer. Is there anywhere you turn? You know, I kind of have a weird view on this. I mean, I would argue, well, what are you looking to get out of a Linux community? Are you talking about desktop Linux? Or are you talking about like Linux, the kernel, Linux on the server? And also, it used to be much, much worse. So I would almost say, I don't know where you're going, but like I would avoid r slash Linux like as much as possible. And go to things like the Ubuntu forums aren't bad. I, I would also say like the Jupyter Broadcasting uh, Telegram channel. I always log in there, and people are like, "Oh, I'm running KDE because apparently I don't have a job and wanted to be exciting." That took a turn. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> and you know, I need help, and people help them who also allegedly don't have jobs. So you know, go there. Yeah, I mean that's true free labor, right? That's always useful. You could tell Mike's a businessman. <laughs> <laughs> Telegrams is a good, Telegram is a good option. It's a little bit different than you know than a Reddit sub, but it but it has a lot of the same same feelings. I think, I think it depends on the, not to interrupt you. I'm sorry, but I just think it depends on the niche. So it depends on how niche down you go. If you go down to a group that's just enthusiastic about developing software, then they get less religious, right? But if you go to a group that's all about GTK or free software, all about cute, then they're going to be pretty passionate. Yeah, understand your niche, and and you're right. I think it's particularly hard too because Linux is it's just it's just a big tent, right? You have sysadmin types, you have free software types, or you might have just people who want to write Python and happen to run it all on Linux. So just avoid the word GNU if you can, and you will be okay. Now you're talking like the Red Hat Summit. We just got like my like uh, we were Mike. We were down there. And I swear they they did not use the word free software <laughs> once the entire week. It's all open source. Yeah, kidding aside, there definitely, at least from my kind of outside-in perspective, there's definitely a schism between like this is GNU and all these proprietary companies are evil, and you can't just use Linux; you have to like be Linux. And like those of us who are trying to again don't want to hit this too hard, get a job done. So yeah, anybody like 
For instance, if you see someone raging on YouTube about so-and-so company contributed X millions or billions of dollars to the Linux Foundation, that's evil. Well, that sentence itself is like logically wrong. So ignore those people. Some pragmatic advice from Mr. Dominic. All right, moving right along. We've got one more piece of feedback today. In our previous episode, a listener had asked about how to document a large system, like databases, microservices, and more. And, well, we had some answers, but probably probably didn't do a good enough job. Someone else has written in, and one idea is a mind map tool, like Freeplane. This can provide a freeform way to show at a high level how all the parts link together and attach as much details as needed, like credentials or screenshots or generated API documentation. And you know, I think that's a great idea because anytime you can get something that is that can capture some of the spirit of maybe like a you know a whiteboard drawing that you have in a meeting as you're diagramming a system architecture, if you can capture that in a way that is kept up to date, that's the hard part. That can be a huge boon, especially to, say, new developers on the team who are really trying to understand the larger architecture. Do you use anything like that, Mike? Um, yeah, I use a program on the Mac called OmniGraffle, and in Chrome, I use draw.io when I'm on Linux. So it, it, I looked at the screenshots here. It's very similar. You can basically do charts, but I have not used this app in particular, so I'm not sure where the differences would be. This is a nice visual way to do this, and yet, and, and I consider myself to be a visual learner and a, a visual processor of information. Never really got into the mind maps, though. It'd be worth a, a draw.io. I think I'm going to give that a go. I've always had the, the problem that if it's not really well done, you end up fighting with the tooling, and then you're like, is this even worth it? I already, yeah. I already know what I'm doing. Yeah. And you just need those barriers to be low if you're going to get everyone involved to, to work on it. My way of tackling this particular problem would be a simple markdown document where I outline all of the areas that need documentation, and then I just continue to expand in on that, and then break it out into individual files, um, which then could be later translated to a wiki or some other documentation database. Markdown's a great way to do that, and stuff like Pandoc or other tools can convert that right to other formats. And I've seen some neat little um, ASCII art to like SVG graphic no tools out way. there. Yeah, so if you draw them in the right way, that's great. You can then get you know richer graphics out of it in the end. I love that. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll, I'll dig up one of those and throw it in the show notes. Yeah, lead podcaster indeed. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff, Mike. That's the kind of stuff right there. It's fire. Okay, so um, while, we're, while we're on this vein of documentation, there's an interesting little new preference from our friends at Google. Obviously, Google I.O. Uh, went on last week, and there was all, all kinds of interesting news. But if you're an Android developer, well, you may have noticed that, well, Android development, it's basically Kotlin first now. Mike totally called this like almost two years on the nose. Called it because Java has Oracle, and if you are from Google, who do you not like? In the announcement, Google writes, quote, Android development will become increasingly Kotlin first, end quote. Right there from Google. Can, you know what, Chris and Wes, can you guys do me a favor? Yeah, sure. Just a small favor now. Whip out that iron skillet for me. Get me some, <laughs> get me some unfiltered bacon. This is the first of two times I'm going to be frying some bacon today. Are you ready? Yeah, fry it up. Well, we'll see. I don't know if we have it loaded in there. So this bacon, it, this bacon is out of Eastern Europe. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Is it tasty? Oh, it's it's you know it's got a kind of a a long history, long memory, sort of not loving Russia feel to it. Because um, remember, JetBrains, which I've been corrected by JetBrains a number of times, it's not actually in Russia. 
Sorry. Uh, so JetBrains is a company that makes Kotlin's. They also make the IntelliJ IDE, which Android Studio is based on. When does Google just say, thank you, welcome to Google? <laughs> Seriously, it, it's, it's going to happen, right? Like, yeah, you think so? You think, you think so, huh? Absolutely. Un- un- unless, un- unless they're making so much money that Google doesn't want to spend it. But why wouldn't they just buy them? Let's fry this up then. Let's fry it up. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. We're frying it up right now. So within 180 days, there. Oh, that's tasty. I like the aromas. I like it. That is nice. It reminds me of. It reminds me of breakfast on a trip. I'm getting hungry already. I know. So I'm sorry. I didn't mean 180 days. I mean a year and a half. Google buys JetBrains. Oh. I mean, you nailed this part of the prediction so far two years ago. So this is part two now, really. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they buy one of the better toolings? And they're, I mean, they're a small little independent shop, right? That's kind of ripe to be snatched up by a giant behemoth. And, and they don't have the money to support a language of this caliber, to my knowledge, based on my research on them. Hmm. Especially if it becomes, if it becomes the, prim- yeah, which it is becoming, of course, yes. Just do the math. Once Google's pushing this, it's in their best interest to, to own the entire tooling. And, I mean, not only that, but Google itself writes a, a ton of Java, right? I mean, that's kind of the back end for, for most of their stuff. And it's also the premier Java IDE. Yeah, and doesn't Oracle sue Google like every two weeks? So, I mean, getting away from them would be... <laughs> it's worth the price of admission and lawyers alone. I wonder if they... I mean, they must also just like it themselves. I want, they write here, too. If you're starting a new project, you should write it in Kotlin. Code written in Kotlin often means much less code for you, less code to type, test, and maintain. So that's just a, a language win on its own. Yeah, kidding aside, I've done some Kotlin in Java projects, and given the choice, I, w- I would do Kotlin every time. Like, d- no questions asked, yeah. And, I mean, Kotlin has a rapidly developing story. You know, there's Kotlin JS, and there's even one targeted at, like, native applications. So it, it's only going to be something we see more of, I think. We also uh, had a bit of a upplay of Chrome OS and a downplay of Fuchsia at Google I.O. Seems like, the, the, at least for the next several years, the path forward for Google is an Android and Chrome OS story, and Fuchsia is c- going to continue just to be an experiment. And that's, I mean, I think that's what at least some parties suspected all along, right? That Fuchsia was, um, was a research project, maybe something to allow some of their uh, top engineers something to work on that was academically interested. Yeah. And, you know, it, it surely will spin out results, right? It might, might provide models that get upstreamed later into the Linux kernel, for yeah. instance. It also works as a great leverage to get lazy kernel developers to create a new LTS kernel that meets your needs. And it continues to work as great negotiating leverage down the road. We, I mean, we're not really going to switch to this, but we could if we want to, and we're getting it in that shape. I mean, I, I think that's really what's happening here, is this is a negotiating piece with the OEMs and with the kernel development, with upstream development, because it benefits the kernel development team a lot to have Google spending a lot of their development money and resources on the Linux kernel. And if Google were to abandon that development, it would be a good portion of money that would go elsewhere into their own proprietary, in a sense, operating system. Right? I mean, why do we have, like, wire containers so popular on Linux? One big factor in that was Google pioneering them for their problems. Say it again, Wes. Say it again. We have containers because of Google. Yeah, well, a lot of the lot of the memory management stuff on ARM devices, a lot of the power management Power support, stuff, yeah, yeah, boy. 
Right. I mean, you start to think about all of the developers that have come to the table because of the Android ecosystem, not even Google itself, but then like your Qualcomm's, your Samsung's that have all come to the Linux ecosystem because of Android. I don't think Linus and Greg KH are ignorant to that fact. No. And so if if you don't, you never need to ship a single Fuchsia product. Or you could ship a couple of them even even better. Yeah, tiny little embedded things, yeah. throw a few out ship there. Ship a couple of them so we can really ship this thing if we want to. I don't know. And then, you know, if they decide to play ball, then they don't need to use it. Um, and I think it's better if everybody wins, right? Because not only is Fuchsia OS sort of this weird OS that uses its own thing, its own stack, but their primary products in the market right now for operating systems, Android and Chrome OS, are all based on Linux. It's always good to have some diversity anyway, right? So uh, it seems like Fuchsia will, will bring some, some things. It did seem that Google was furthering down on some of their Linux kernel bets, though, especially regarding Chrome OS, which is every day seemingly becoming more and more like a regular Linux desktop just with, you know, Google's branding on it. Yeah. And now we're going to have Flutter as a way to, we're gonna, they're bringing Flutter over. You're going to have additional, uh, I say something like every Chrome OS machine that's built in 2019 will support running Linux applications or something like that. Right out of the box. On, and during the keynote. Yeah. Like a lot of things are moving into place here. Um, and right now, if, on, a, on a current Chromebook, you can go into a, the, like the search app launcher thing, type in terminal. And in the background, the dang thing sets up a Debian 9 instance for you, a container and launches it. Uh, what well, one piece that I thought was interesting. So Flutter is this this is cross UI cross platform yeah. toolkit I think mm-hmm. powered by Dart under the hood. Um and and the idea is, you know, as we all want something that you can write once and run everywhere. Flutter is targeting that and one of their targeted or the supported platforms is Chrome OS. So you can basically develop native Chrome OS. I mean, it's still all using Android, I think, under the hood. Another target though, it's just a shim in their code for the moment, but they're intending to, to work it out so that you can have both GTK, I think that'll be the one they target first, or cute platforms, but desktop Linux, right? So you could be able to code something in Flutter, run it as a web UI, or use Flutter to target the Linux desktop? I don't know how it's going to go, but that could be very powerful because one thing we've kind of missed in the Linux world is we, we don't just have one thing to point people at to develop apps. You can do it with Electron or okay, pick one of the major toolkits and hope that you make the right choice without really understanding all the implications that there are. If Flutter is well-supported, that might become the default. Mike, I'm curious what your take. Have you played with Flutter? I mean, you seem to already be using some similar or competing products. Yeah, I haven't really played with Flutter uh, more than just doing a couple sample Skunkworks things. Um, I am less optimistic than you guys, I think. I think Flutter is going to be, for people who are so deep into the Google Firebase ecosystem, where that's kind of what they know, which is, which is fine. Um, I, don't, uh, I, I don't really think it's a serious production tool at the moment. Hmm. I think it's a fair hot take, and um, really can't argue with it. I think it is early days still. Can I just change tracks for a second? You know how there's always that joke that it's the year of the Linux desktop, which would be easy to make right now when you've got all of these different vendors shipping these these Linux shims. Um, but something else that you and I noticed at Red Hat Summit that is in the link that we'll have in the show notes for this Flutter blog post, all of these big summits that just happened, you know, Google I.O., um, PyCon, Red Hat Summit, and Build, all very, very prominently featured VS Code. All of them. Google showed VS Code up on stage. This Flutter blog post has VS Code in the blog post. Red Hat, 
talked about VS Code up on stage, had slides talking about VS Code up on stage. Build, obviously, talked extensively about VS Code and a lot of its new features. We talked about VS Code remote last episode. That was one of the things they talked about at Build. Um, Just, this is the year of VS Code. Holy shit. It's a flat pack that's, like, super easy to install on Fedora. It's snapped up officially by Microsoft, which is just insane. And it was, again, I I just got to say this, on a Red Hat slide. VS Code. Microsoft Visual Studio Code on a Red Hat slide. I think that might uh, just further prove Mike's prediction right is, you know, with Mike, it's been very successful for Microsoft and has huge momentum. I bet that scares Google a little bit. And that may be another reason that JetBrains looks appealing to them. That's right. That's right. So, so if we want to jump into the Microsoft loves Linux thing, uh, I'm going to need some uh, bacon out of the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> I love it. It's a double bacon episode. Here we go. <laughs> the burner's still hot. Mm, taste it. Hints of maple. I should have been wearing a shirt for this. Oh my! Ah! <laughs> some some sort of redwood uh, kind of hint there. So I'm going to make an argument that is going to inflame the subreddit in YouTube. But too bad. If you are a Linux fan, but not a GNU Linux fan, come let's say October, which I think it's really going to be like. August, but let's say October. The best distro of Linux, bar none, is going to be Windows 10. Because what is a Linux distro if not a kernel with a bunch of desktop and user experience features built on top of it? That's a, I mean, that's a, that's a big claim there. I, yeah, I mean, I, at first I was going to call you crazy, and then you added that second part where you said, "What is a Linux desktop if not for something built on top of a Linux kernel?" And then I was kind of starting to think maybe you have a point. <laughs> Well, think about it. Think, think, so think about a guy like me who like has to support Windows software. Oh, you're going to make me throw up a little bit. Oh, uh, but, but just, just, just hear me out. Okay, okay. But deploys backends almost exclusively to Linux. Actually, right now, exclusively to Linux. And, you know, isn't particularly happy with macOS hardware. And anyway, you know, boot camp, let's just say boot camp hasn't been getting the love it should be on the Apple side. So if I need a good Linux command line, and if you haven't seen the uh, new terminal that Microsoft's coming out with in the summer, you need to take a look at that. And I also need Windows desktop application support. I can think of no distro better than Satya Nadella edition Windows 10. (laughs) All right. I mean, at the end of the day, you still have to deal with the hot mess that is Windows. And I think you, you can't discount how frustrating that can be for people that have been dealing with Windows for a long time. Although I think there's a there's a set of quote-unquote power users that you might argue it's because they haven't been exposed mm-hmm. to the perhaps better paradigms available in the but free they just software desktop. How to like, but they are good at yeah, Windows, and yeah. they might like Linux, yeah. but don't, need, don't feel like they need to change. I was listening to the um, excellent coverage of just this very topic in Linux Action News 105 oh, thank you. earlier today, and I kept going back and forth about how I feel about this, because on one hand, it's kind of a huge win for, for Linux, right? Because Microsoft basically couldn't compete on the server or with, you know, with large enterprise developer mindset. Or even the user land command line. Not even, yeah, not even the command line. And so they, are, they were basically forced to ship the full GPL Linux, right? You know, I mean, you do have to like optionally add it or whatever, but it, it's there packaged by Microsoft. And, you know, they've, they've always had all these power and why it's threatening is because they have more, they just have more resources to devote to the desktop, right? That's, that's a lot of what they're doing. They have huge teams of people to develop on this. So 
Now they just have a more pragmatic mindset. They can actually leverage open source just as effectively as the, the pure open source communities, and they have the commercial advantage. Yeah. I'll tell you what, it, what, what the issue is, is fundamentally at the end of the day, uh, it's a great initiative, but it's still Microsoft. And so they're doing it exactly backwards. It starts with the name, the Windows subsystem for Linux. Seriously, <laughs> right. I'm not even yeah. joking. It starts at the name. They're doing a backwards approach. They are reverse engineering their way into relevancy. And it's a typical top-down approach from Microsoft. It's the same issue they had with mobile, where they try to take a full-fledged desktop operating system and distill it down for mobile, instead of starting from a clean slate and building from the ground up for mobile. They're doing the same thing here. Trying to They're make still a, a legacy company in many ways. Right. They're trying to make a relevant developer workstation from a top-down approach by taking something that has everything turned on by default, everything that's installed by default, a massive behemoth that is 15 years worth of desktop legacy, and they're bootstrapping into it a Linux kernel that runs in a really tight, tiny, well-designed VM. At the end of the day, though, it doesn't solve the problem that is Windows. Just like putting Windows on a mobile device doesn't make it a mobile operating system, they're not making this a developer workstation. They're making it more accommodating, and they're making it an easier stopgap for people that haven't taken the plunge to a different platform. But I don't actually think it solves the core issue, which is... Fundamentally, they have a software-hardware ecosystem issue. You know, you can crack jokes about the quality of Mac hardware, but at least you know what you're going to get. And it's easy to spec it out. It's easy to request it. It's conceivable. It's manageable. You go to Dell's website or you go to Lenovo's website, and it's a goddamn hot mess. You can't tell what you're getting. And it's, it's, you're, you're getting upsells in every different direction for software packages that are total shit shows that make your machine run slow. None of those problems have been solved yet. You can go get yourself a service book if you want to be in the same exact situation you are with Apple, where only one vendor is making the hardware. So they're really not solving any of the overall ecosystem problems that make it extremely annoying to use the Windows platform. It's better, and it makes it easier to use, but it doesn't solve the fundamentals. That's my opinion, though. I mean, if I was a lifelong Windows user, I'd be thrilled at this news. So, so you're looking at it almost exactly backwards, actually. So you're doing exactly what you think Microsoft is doing. Windows is a feature in a lot of industries because Windows is a certified platform that someone on high said this pl application must ship on. So even if you're a bash-loving developer, it is a pain in the ass, frankly, to have to carry two laptops, right? And honestly, the problem with Windows, in my opinion, I know this, I'm much more forgiving uh, than I think most of our audience, is that like the C prompt is, a, is basically an abortion in terms of a command line. It's a joke. Oh, it's so bad. So bad. But the new, I mean, the new terminal does legitimately look good. It does fix it. Uh, WS, frankly, even without WSL2, I mean, the, the hot take here is now that it is a Linux kernel, you could make a sideways sort of weak, but definitely interesting argument that Windows 10 really is a Linux distro. <laughs> Uh, but even without that, I would bet you any amount of money that there are a lot of developers in our audience, uh, and not the ragey ones who write into Reddit every couple of weeks, but like people doing their job who are working on Linux and popping up a Windows VM because there's some multi-million dollar application that's you know WPF, C-sharp, and it's their job to keep running, whether with duct tape or wood glue or whatever they need to do. Fair you enough. Know, what came to my mind in this is, is it partially a play to just keep some Windows licenses oh, happy? Sure. Right? Because how many shops 
you know, if you're lucky, you have IT administrators who are comfortable, you know, adding Linux machines to an Active Directory domain. And But by and large, no, right? They have their infrastructure set up probably for Windows laptops. So before, there might have been enough developer pressure to either get MacBooks or, oh, you know, we really need a Linux laptop that you have to custom support for thus. That argument kind of falls flat if yeah. with WSL. Well, with yeah, absolutely. The, the whole thing is also, I think, you're only having part of the conversation, I should say, unless we bring up Azure. Because there is a there's a big Azure development component to this. And in the overall like year 2025, where you have the perfect ideal Microsoft world, and I imagine it to be this, you have your on-premises Windows 10, Windows 7 workstations that are connected to an active directory on-premises. And you have a lot of current applications that you've invested a lot of years into development running on those systems. But your future applications are being developed. Again, this is Microsoft's ideal world. Your future applications are being developed on Azure boxes, running on Azure, connected back to your Active Directory, which is likely running on top of a Linux stack. And so for them, if they can push down a Linux development environment to your Windows 10 machine for all of these on-premises Windows 10 boxes, they've just enabled you to do local development for Azure systems. And I wouldn't discount the fact that Canonical is coming out and saying, we are going to actually support the Ubuntu you install on WSL2 because it's using the same virtualizer that we're supporting on Azure. That's massive scale. It's even sexier, and I think it's going to be very seductive, particularly to junior developers. You're forgetting the other, uh, I would say, the... the uh other piece of the Holy Trinity, and that's GitHub. So let's say you pull down your Azure environment, everything looks great locally. You push the GitHub. Now there's a little prompt. Why not just in Visual Studio that says, deploy to Azure instance such and such GUID ID? Done. No YAML files, no bullshit with, oh, you got to run my migrations and my local versus my production database are in a different state, so I just took everything down. Yes, I'm dunking on Rails. I, I don't know. I think like old guys like us, frankly, are are gonna because we know how to do this deployments DevOps stuff already. Might not appreciate the like. Think back to when you you were guys were just starting. Imagine an IDE, if you will. Picture it, Sicily, nineteen thirty. <laughs> you have an IDE that it says testing on local hosts. Would you like to test on virtualized Azure? Huh. Well, it pulls down your entire configuration from Azure. Great. Would you like to push to GitHub? Sure. Push successful. It's, uh, your continuous integration via App Center completed. Or I think now they call it uh, Microsoft um, Mobile App or whatever they call it. Would you like to deploy your backend to Azure? Click here. Done. And they've already run the test. They've already run a health check. They've guaranteed you're not going to be scrambling for the rest of the day with basically, I broke my database via, I'm going to use the word migrations, but I know other ecosystems have different words. I don't know. Even me, who like knows how to do all this stuff with scripts, might be like, I really, it's not valuable for me to be fighting with configuration files. No, I mean, as much as you can have taken care of for you, especially if you have more than enough work just trying to, you know, finish the feature you're working on, that is a very appealing proposition. I mean, I think Chris will buy four more HomePods and then a new Alienware Windows 10 PC, <laughs> and he'll go on the Linux Action News and say, this mm. is the best distro, yeah, yeah. but he'll wait a year, uh -huh. and he won't give me credit for it. <laughs> that's going to be the other. <laughs> that's, that's my plan, yeah. It's, it's a long-term plan. <laughs> but it's great that I can run these games. Exactly. He's like, mm, I don't know. All I play is Magic the Gathering Arena, so I have no idea what like real games are like anymore. 
don't you know that the plan is I'm just going to buy really expensive Macs with no GPUs and then just buy external eGPUs for the rest of my life? That's my plan. Oh, you have to go here, don't you? You've been keeping us in the dark, Mike. We, yeah. I, we all want to know more details yeah. about what's going on over there. I mean, there. you've inspired me. I've been experimenting a little bit with an eGPU with my uh, ThinkPad laptop, and uh, it's been kind of hit and miss. It's been an NVIDIA eGPU, though, so I don't know if that makes a difference. And curious how your adventures have gone and if it's actually worth the money. So, yeah, my, my eGPU is an OWC case with a uh, AMD Sapphire 560X. You can Google that if you want. That'd be a similar setup I might go with. Yeah, and because I have to have it work on macOS, it, NVIDIA was out of the question, although maybe not pretty soon. Um, this eGPU can plug into my Mac Mini, my Darter, and my HP Spectre, which runs Windows. Wow. So that's three operating systems, one eGPU. Okay, so you have, you've, you've tried it on all three then? I'd be curious how, how they all variously fail. I have used it on all three. <laughs> so again, you say, yeah, what was that? Three OSs, one GPU? <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't get that. Yes, yes, I, yes, I won't even say the reference. So it works instantaneously on macOS. No problem. Because, you know, obviously Mac is the one true operating system. Aren't they even selling little kits now that like are pseudo endorsed by Apple? Uh, well, that's a $1,500 eGPU. But it's at least a, no- a notion that they are, uh, you know, aware of. Yeah, so I think this is where Apple is going to answer the I can't open up my Mac and expand it question. Um, and it works instantly. It's great. Thunderbolt 3. Everybody loves it. Windows. Have you ever been to AMD's Windows driver website? You know, thankfully, no. And I'm not intending to anytime soon. If you've seen the movie Hellraiser, uh, you'll, you'll kind of get the theme. Very black and red. Very confusing. Uh, but it does work. It, took, it takes maybe like 45 minutes to get it working. Why did it take so long? What was the, like, the challenge? Well, you have to run a Windows update to you get a certain version of Windows 10, and you have to kind of keep update. You know how Windows says you have to pick if it's actually going to give you the update, right? You have to kind of wait till it decides that you have an update. Mm, right, update, then wait, and then see if your update's there again, and then do the next round of that. And then, and then restart a few times, yeah. And then install the AMD thing and restart, and then while it loads, it has to do something else while it restarts. It's, it's fun. Now, you, Wes, put in a handy-dandy script here for getting this set up on Ubuntu that I did not see. That's right. I did it by hand. It's a pain in the ass. You have to fiddle around with uh, Misa Utils, Jar Jar Binks' favorite PPA. But once you have it running, and you do have to restart, which, you know, I know Linux people, you say that never happens. Um, But you do. It does work fine. I I will say that this right now, I would say the order is Mac... Windows, Linux in terms of support. But the testing I did was on 18.10, not 19.4. So I'm wondering if the new update with the new kernel might be a little better. And uh, yeah, I mean, this this kind of has changed how I think about workstations. So when you say it's changed the way you think about workstations, do you mean in the fact that you're going to kind of, in the future, buy a machine and not worry about it having a baked-in GPU of any sort? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, because I'm bound to basically buying machines that it's very hard to replace the GPU. I could see myself having like a Mac and a Linux um, laptop, or a or a Windows and a Linux laptop, and just when I need that kind of power, hooking them up to the eGPU. But most of the time, when I don't, uh, particularly because I travel a lot, I would just run them on the Intel integrated, whatever the hell, right? Yeah. 
I'm a little curious. Um, have you done multiple workloads? I'm wondering if there's a difference between having to configure it just to support like GPU offloading for training ML models or something versus trying to get a fully accelerated desktop going. So on Windows in particular, there is a very obnoxious AMD app that wants you to like tweak it for what you're doing. I did not do that because my Windows, I really just tested it running some games on the HP Spectre. It was a little weird playing Tomb Raider on a Ultrabook and having it look nice on an external monitor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have experienced that too with my ThinkPad. It really, you're not joking, it really is something to have like this tiny machine that has no GPU in it and you're playing a full-fledged video game. And on Mac, it does it for you. It doesn't, uh, in fact, I don't think there's an interface even. I looked it up to actually like tweak it too much on macOS. Having said that, Chris, can we spill the bacon here? Or the beans that go with the bacon? Ooh, let's, <laughs> you know, we do, we do have so much bacon, we might as well have the beans too. One last little, here, we'll do the bacon ends here. This is frying up the bacon ends, Mike. It's good, it's tasty. Ooh, I can smell it. Yeah. All right, go ahead. So, Chris shared with me today in Slack, presumably to get me excited, that a Mac Pro was coming out. Oh, the, the leaked image of the uh, like cheese grater 2.0 style is the rumor. With PCI slots, eight Thunderbolt ports. Did you say eight? Yeah. Wow, that's a beast. So are they actually recognizing that Macs could be good if Again, they put a tiny amount of effort? It's- damn, Wes, damn. It's a rumored leak, so don't get your hopes up. It's a rumored uh, product image, and the image is from November 2018. So So it's just a clever troll who realizes that's what everyone wants. It was Chris taking his HomePod and Photoshopping it. (laughs) Just stretching it up. (laughs) Yeah. No, but the real real hot take here is NVIDIA support. Yeah, Um, which currently you can't even do on the Mac with an eGPU. Not unless it's the same architecture as the old, old 2006, yeah. So that's, that, that if, if true, could be big for a lot of these machine learning jobs and the, and the CUDA workloads and whatnot. Uh-huh. Um, it also means it's likely a fake leak. I'm just not buying yeah. it. Why do you do these things to me? <laughs> I don't know. I've, for me, the issue with the eGPU legitimately sounds like a compelling product. And having some experience, I bought myself, I talked about this in Linux Unplugged. I got, they, have a, they have a ThinkPad dock that has an NVIDIA 1060 built into right, it. Right, just built, re- integrated right in. So you get a Thunderbolt 3 dock with all the traditional Thunderbolt 3 dock ports with a GPU. And I thought, man, isn't that like a great idea? So I tried it out to some success, to also some some issues. but And I was very, very impressed. But I have to tell you, every time I've wanted to use that eGPU dock has not been when I'm at my desk. It's been when I'm traveling and I've got like three hours in a hotel room to kill. And I'm like, man, I wish I would have packed my eGPU dock. <laughs> have you experienced that? Because that's where I'd want to actually have it is when I got a couple hours to kill and I want to play a video game. Yeah, so again, like I'm, I know you're a much bigger gamer than I. My game of choice is MTG Arena, which by the way, if you're using desktop Linux, runs awesome on Nutris, so you don't actually need a Windows install. Um, yeah, and, and Jason from Choose Linux uh, plays, and one day I will beat him. <laughs> We've never played yet, because we're on different time zones, but actually, I have a few pain points very different than that, though. Like The enclosure is bigger than my Mac Mini. Yeah, that's not a storm behind him, that's the eGPU. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the eGPU. Right, so also... 
am I the only one in the world who didn't know that Thunderbolt fails above a certain length? Well, well that's a complicated protocol. It is. Pushing compl- a lot of yeah. data. Yeah, it depends what you're doing. So what you're doing with that really, really high uh, bandwidth is like active Thunderbolt 3, and yet it has to be a certain length cable, yeah. I guess that means the GPU has to be, the eGPU has to be fairly close to your face hole. Well, so the cable that comes with the OWC uh, eGPU case that I have is literally three and a half inches long. Yeah. Uh, it's actually taut when I'm putting the Mac Mini on top of the eGPU case and plugging it in. It's pathetic. And like a six-foot cable costs, I don't know, an arm and a leg. Mm-hmm. Well, a six-foot cable of the right caliber to do this costs a fortune, I found out. So I didn't do it. Yeah. I don't know. And the other thing is, if Chris is just pulling my leg and I can't run NVIDIA... Well, then really, you know, for like the only ML library that works well with AMD is Core ML because it's from Apple, yeah. who up till now hates NVIDIA. Everything else is just better on AM, uh, NVIDIA. But you can swap cards in and out of that enclosure, right? So you could have, in theory, an NVIDIA card that you swapped in for certain workloads and an AMD card, and you're still kind of saving money because you only have to buy one of each. I know that sounds crazy, but... Well, so the positive case that I would make for someone like me who travels a lot, and maybe even someone like you, is maybe even Wes, actually. You could like buy a new little Linux laptop every year or two, in my case, every three weeks, and uh, just you know plug it into your eGPU and not spend money on an integrated graphics card. That's what I'm thinking. And it also means you can, you'll likely get a, a smaller, lighter machine that's better on airplanes. Right. Oh, that's a good point. Well, and the battery life, those of us who do a lot of coding in airplane terminals, nothing's worse than not being able to get an outlet and having to, like, patch something. And it's nice when you're not, you know, when you aren't using that, then you can just be, as you said, Mike, using the Intel graphics, which aren't great, but work beautiful when you're on an open source desktop. Yeah. Especially when you just need, like, a terminal and a text editor. Yeah. I mean, it's perfect. Some fine. electron apps, because you have to. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, Flutter desktop apps? Yeah. <laughs> oh, here we go. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, well, it all really depends on uh, how energy efficient the Windows subsystem for Linux is, apparently. <laughs> That's what it's all about, baby. Listen, I, you, you know what? I am showing up to Linux Unplugged one day saying, hey, guys, check out my new desktop. Look at the design. I have a background here of a a, a square with four subsquares. It's blue. And uh, yeah, oh, look at this. Look at this. I'm running games. Have you guys heard of Steam? I hate you right now. <laughs> all right, but I mean, all kidding aside, it kind of feels like you've you've transitioned to uh, a new way. Like, like, there's no going back for you on the eGPU thing. Like, challenges aside. No. Will you be building a big desktop anytime in the future then? So this is the irony. Uh, assuming Chris isn't screwing with me, they finally come out with the Mac I want or they're allegedly coming out this summer or this fall, and now I no longer give a crap about desktops. It's only been, what, five, six years? Nice. Go figure, right? Go figure. Because think about it, 500 bucks a year, I could get the new best spanking high-end GPU I want and not have to update to, you know, crazy Thaleo number four or like crazy Mac Pro or whatever Dell sells. Right. And not to be like old man Chris here, but... uh, uh, kids, it's gotten to the point where I couldn't tell you if I'm on a fourth generation i7 or a sixth generation i7 or even a second generation. It doesn't seem to matter. They're just so fast. Like, you you know, like at a certain point when you've got MVNE drives, you've got i7 processors, and you've got interchangeable GPUs, the the base unit, the, the, the core machine is pretty damn fast. And then it really just comes down to graphics and storage. And I've got network storage, too. Network storage adds a ton of additional storage to my machine. 
Well, and don't forget Thunderbolt 3. If you buy a high-end enough uh, NVMe uh, Thunderbolt 3 NAS system, that's nearly onboard performance. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have a gigabit LAN here in the studio, and it, you know, it flies copy and files over to the, free, to the free NAS, no problem. I mean, everything fails because you old thermal throttling, but I'm ignoring that problem right now. <laughs> well, you externalize the GPU with decent cooling, right. and that makes your machine run cooler, too, although it does heat up running that Thunderbolt bus as hard as it does. I just do all my development from the walk-in, so it's fine. <laughs> I have to say, of all the three machines, I will give the Galago one thing. It might always spin its fans up, but it doesn't seem to suffer the way the HP does with the eGPU. The Spectre is very thin, so I can imagine they're really throttling that thing. It must be a tiny fan, and I gotta say, it sounds like a, one of those quadru, uh, quadrupod drones taking off. It's bad. So you're just you're just embracing the tri-operating system lifestyle. You're not you're not dual booting anymore. You're tri booting with and then with an eGPU in the mix now. Like this is getting complicated. Wow. So I have a relatively crappy old Dell display. That's why. I, in fact, on Twitter, I'm asking people to recommend the new 27-inch Matt. I only want Matt display um, that has display port and then i have one of those amazon laptop stands so here's the deal everything has thunderbolt you plug it in if i need to work on mac os i plug in the the air if i need to work or the mac mini which is sitting here um, but that's really supposed to be a server if i need to work on windows i plug in the hp if i need to work on linux i plug in the darter and we're good to go same keyboard, which is a DOS keyboard, same mouse, which is my old Naga mouse that we had from before I, we started the show originally. Basically, I've built like my own ghetto or I think pretty fancy docking system. Right. So you just have like a little a little Thunderbolt cable dangling out there. You just plug in whatever you want. I like that. That's nice. Yeah. And a Thunderbolt hub for all the USB crap, right? So the keyboard. And, yeah. So the only the only like kind of cognitive gymnastics you have to do is if you swap in a Mac, you've got to swap the like the command and control keys stuff. You know, I sometimes get confused between like Pop and Mac all the time. <laughs> oh, Gnome Shell, how Mac OS you've, or actually more like Mac OS has become more like Gnome <laughs> right. Shell, I think, really. I'm just like, why doesn't my command work? I don't understand this. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. But that's really the problem. Uh, I mean, the only thing I've noticed that's mildly annoying is the monitor I have does not have an in, uh, what do you call that? In built in, built in microphone. Oh, sure. So taking conference calls. For doesn't work the way I would like it to. You just gotta get yourself like a Logitech webcam or something. Ah, if you can recommend one, shoot it to me in Slack. C930E. Oh, I could just Google that, okay. Or C930 or C920. But C930 would be the... We'll throw a link in the show notes. How about that? that? We will. That's the one I use right there. It's got a nice wide-angle flat lens. And it's a, it's a mic as well, or no? Yeah, it has a good dual-array stereo mic, so it does a decent job. I mean, Mike, you're using a microphone right now. <laughs> you do have a microphone, by the way. <laughs> I thought this was like a, a, a club I was supposed to hit Invading Barbarians with. It's for podcasting only. Actually, fair point. I did not. I, I literally never thought of that. You know what would be kind of fun is if people have uh, kind of cool, interesting setups that uh, they'd like to share with us, they should do it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Pictures, too, would be kind of cool. Yeah. Just go to coder.show slash contact. You can contact us that way. Or, hey, it turns out we're all on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne. Mike, you're... At Dumanuko. And I'm at Chris LAS. You can find the whole network there, too, at Jupiter Signal. We do this show live every Monday, right about noon Pacific, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to a time zone near you. That'll be it for today's show. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>